Hello, and welcome to today's Institute for Healthcare Improvements Author in the Room conference call. My, my name is Dawn, and I will be your conference operator for today's call. Right now, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session, and instructions on how to participate will follow at that time. As a reminder, this call is being recorded. If you should need operator assistance at any time, please press star zero on your touchtone phone. I would now like to introduce our moderator for today's call, Dr. David Shute. Dr. Shute is a medical director and senior consultant with Greenfield Health Systems in Portland. Greenfield is an innovative med medical practice whose mission is delivery of superior clinical quality and patient service and spread of best practices through ad advocacy and teaching. Previously, Dr. Shute served as a medical director of Acumentra Health, uh, the Oregon Quality Improvement Organization. There, Dr. Shute was responsible for oversight of all clinical activities and led the state's quality improvement activities. Dr. Shute, you may go ahead. Great. Thank you, Dawn. Greetings, and welcome once again to Author in the Room, a monthly program sponsored by JAMA the Journal of the American Medical Association, and IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. My name is Dr. Shute, and I will be your moderator for today's call. We are delighted that you could join us today. As you know, author-in-the-room calls are designed to translate new knowledge, what is published in a recent JAMA article, into actionable steps that it can improve clinical practice and patient care. Our author-in-the-room series occurs on the third Wednesday, of every month at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, with the next call uh, being in June. The article for that call uh, will be, What is the Correct Dose of Aspirin for Cardiovascular Disease Prevention, uh, which is published in uh, the April 4th article of JAMA. Uh, please join us for that call. Uh, our featured author today will be Dr. Jan Brandis. Uh, Carlin, would you please go ahead and read Dr. Brandis's bio for us? Sure, thank you. Jan Brandis is an assistant clinical professor in the Department of Neurology at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee. She also heads the Nashville Neuroscience Group. Prior to attending Vanderbilt University School of Medicine, where she subsequently earned her medical degree, Dr. Brandis attended the Robert Koch Institute of Virology, Free Insti University in West Berlin, Federal Republic of Germany as a Fulbright Scholar. Her postgraduate medical training was completed at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, where she served as a chief resident in neurology. She also holds a master's science degree in microbiology from the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. She is certified by the National Board of Medical Examiners, the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology, and the National Board for Certification and Headache Management. Thank you, David. Great. Thank you. And Dr. Brandis will be dis is the lead article, uh, lead author rather on today's article, Sumatreptin Naproxen for Acute Treatment of Migraine, which was published in the April 4th, uh, 2007 issue of JAMA. Uh, welcome, Dr. Brandis. Thank you. Uh, as moderator, it's my job to help focus our discussion on the application of Dr. Brandis's research with the goal of driving performance improvement based on this article. The purpose of author in the room is for you to hear directly from an author or authors about the research findings that can improve patient care and clinical practice. Together, uh, Dr. Brandis and I will help you translate what is in today's paper into changes applicable to your practice. Here's how the hour will proceed. Dr. Brandis will spend about 10 to 15 minutes summarizing her findings. I will then take about five minutes to draw out some of the implications for uh, practice management and, imp and uh, implementation uh, into the office setting, and then try to set the stage for your questions and comments. I want to stress how important your participation is in these calls. This is a great forum in which you get clarification on anything about the article itself by hearing directly from the lead author and to contemplate with others the significance of the findings and the steps you might take in using this information towards the improvement of care. Your participation, not just in terms of questions, but in offering up your experience and lessons learned in this area will be quite helpful to the call. There are approximately 30 phone lines connected to the call today, generally with several individuals participating per line. Some members of the media may be present on today's call on a background basis only. 
On another note, this call is being recorded and will be made available on the IHI and the JAMA websites as a streaming audio or podcasts. Complete details and instructions are available under the program section on IHI.org. Prior author in the room calls are also available. Now let's get started. Let me again introduce Dr. Brandis, who will provide an overview of her recent article. Dr. Brandis? Well, it's certainly my privilege to be with you today and to talk about migraine and this new fixed-dose combination therapy that has been evaluated and the re trial results, of course, are what were published in JAMA. I think that regardless of how one comes to migraine, it's clear that migraine is a, an extraordinarily prevalent disorder in the United States. If you look at the numbers, migraine in the U.S. is more common than diabetes and asthma put together. So it's a disorder that has very um, broad implications for treatment from a public health standpoint and then certainly I think from an everyday practice standpoint. What we were interested in in, this, in these trials looking at sumatriptan naproxen for acute treatment was to see if a combination product using drugs, two individual drugs that are known to have efficacy in migraine, to see if the combination somehow could afford patients benefit in terms of treating an individual attack of migraine. And to be specific, if patients treat with a combination product, could they get pain-free more quickly? Could they stay pain-free and have less need for so-called rescue medications? So the other important part of that is certainly we know that for the patients who were evaluated in the clinical trial that was published in JAMA, and it's really two trials put together, but for the purposes of today's discussion, I'm going to present it as if it is one trial. Could these patients take drug and treat their moderate to severe attacks of migraine, often which were disabling, debilitating attacks of migraine, and have a very different outcome than if they used a single product, a single drug alone? And specifically, if they used a single sumatriptan tablet or a single naproxen tablet. And that's really the design of the trial. We know, I think probably everyone listening in is very familiar with the triptans, the, the migraine-specific 5-HT1B1D agonist. The first of those was sumatriptan introduced in 1993 and I think it has really, I think it's not an overstatement to say that that drug uh, revolutionized the treatment of acute migraine in this country. That said, this the first um, formulation for that product was an injectable, and we know that that's not appropriate for all patients, and certainly I think the majority of patients, it's clearly established in a number of studies that most patients prefer tablet formulations if, if they work and if they're available. And so if we look at the seven formulations of triptans, we know that while they're wonderful products and while they all have wonderful efficacy and if patients treat early they're less likely to have the return of the migraine. We still do not have essentially perfect outcomes in the treatment of migraine and I think one of the issues that continue to plague us are that patients really don't get pain free early and by that I mean within the one to two hour range. And recurrence of headache is a tremendous problem that was ironically never even evaluated in the early migraine, acute migraine therapy trials. As we've had the benefit of increasing acute therapies in migraine, I think we've had better designed trials and I think the, current, the currently published trial really does benefit from trial designs in the past. And so again, one of the issues that's recognized in this trial, and I think it's one that all of us as clinicians struggle with is the fact that migraine for adults is a 4 to 72 hour event and if one can get pain free or get pain relief within two hours, for example, that's very important to a patient and to those of us who treat migraineurs. But one of the important issues is that not all of the drugs that are used for acute migraine therapy keep patients that way. And therein lies the fact that many patients will have to retreat. They may have to miss work. If the attack progresses, they may have more severe um, additional features of the migraine, such as vomiting. They may, again, find themselves at the end of a 24-hour period even worse than they were at two hours. So even if there is an initial response, there may not be a sustained response. And those are the things that I think clinicians and patients struggle with. So this trial was really designed to look at 
putting two drugs that target different parts in the, along the path that leads to a full-blown migraine attack, and specifically the 5-HT1B1D agonist sumatriptan was dosed in an 85-milligram um, dose, and the proxim sodium, 500 milligrams, was combined with it in a fixed tablet. And then patients were asked to treat when their pain, when their migraine attack was at moderate to, a moderate to severe level. And I think, again, that's very important. These are not patients who treated early. These were established migraineurs. And I think, as you may have seen from the um, inclusion criteria, these are men and women between 18 and 65 who had had at least a six-month history of migraine with or without aura. They had to have had two to six moderate to severe episodes of migraine during the previous each month during the previous three months before they were enrolled in the trial. And they could not have chronic migraine or chronic daily headache more than 15 days of headache a month. They had to have, um, they had to meet all the criteria that we use, that I think all of us use, that have been established for the role of both appropriate use of naproxen and appropriate use of sumatriptan. In other words, they had to have controlled hypertension, they had to have no uh, cardiovascular or cerebrovascular disease, no history of cardiac arrhythmias, and they could not have basilar or hemiplegic migraine as their headache diagnosis. So with those, with, with that sort of outline and looking at a patient population which really, I think, continues to need very aggressive therapies to help them not be disabled with their migraine attacks, not miss work, not miss activities, the trial um, proceeded. And as you can see, I think we looked at a essentially an interesting set of primary endpoints. It's the first time that so many primary endpoints were used in a drug. And again, part of this is looking at if you're going to use a combination product, can you really show superiority at multiple levels? And if you look specifically at what we were addressing in terms of primary endpoints, you can see that, again, there were six primary endpoints looking at efficacy, the combination versus placebo alone at two-hour pain relief, and the incidence of associated symptoms, nausea, sensitivity to light, photophobia, phonophobia, sensitivities of sound. And then also two to 24-hour sustained pain-free response was examined looking at the fixed product versus sumatriptan alone and sumatriptan versus naproxen versus naproxen sodium alone. And I would just also point out that the formulation of naproxen sodium is mentioned as 500 in terms of the milligram dose, and sumatriptan is a rapid release technology and that technology was the formulation for the sumatriptan that was used in the studies. And what we found when we looked at these primary outcome measures was that the combination was more effective than placebo for headache relief at two hours after dosing, that it was also more effective in terms of producing an absence of photophobia and an absence of phonophobia. The absence of nausea after two hours was higher with the combination than placebo in study one, but it didn't differ significantly in study two. And part of that may have, we think, may be related to the study population um, in study two, which appeared to be patients who had more um, side effects and more effects in terms of um, if we count nausea as part of the migraine, as of course it certainly is. And then when we examined two to 24-hour sustained pain-free responses, the combination of sumatriptan naproxen sodium was superior to sumatriptan monotherapy and to naproxen sodium monotherapy and to placebo. And positively, the, the incidence of adverse events was also similar between the combination and sumatriptan monotherapy. And if you look at that data, if you look at the adverse event profile, I think we see that one really doesn't have to pay a penalty in terms of side effects in, in looking at taking the fixed combination versus, versus for example, taking sumatriptan alone. I think there are a number of factors that 
that are important to pull out from this trial because it does certainly have a lot of data and I think those of you who have seen the paper have seen uh, that we really tried to present the results from both studies in terms of looking at exactly who was included, how they were randomized, who got included in the primary efficacy analysis, who did not, who took study medication, who was not evaluable, and then looking at the baseline participant characteristics and I would just say that overall they certainly represent, I think in this country who has migraine, the vast majority of the patients in the study were women. They are, the average age was about 40. So that's certainly the group of, of the group of U.S. Um, um, patients that is disproportionately represented as migraineurs. I think when we look up at what's happening in the brains of migraineurs, the issues related to combination therapy become very apparent. We know that sumatriptan by itself acts on multiple levels in brain and the addition of naproxen sodium is really designed to address the fact that many migraineurs do not treat early. And one of the problems is I think I mentioned earlier with sumatriptan and I think it's one that we all recognize with all of the triptans is that if patients do not treat early, they may miss the opportunity to become pain free and have their attack really completely aborted or into interrupted as soon or within, say, 30 minutes to an hour of taking acute medication. The addition of the naproxen sodium is really felt to be playing a role in the inhibition of the synthesis of prostaglandins and that that addition may reduce meningeal inflammation and reverse what's termed central sensitization in the brainstem. And a number of investigators, including Rami Burstein at Beth Israel, have shown that if patients do not treat with triptans, or if they treat with triptans, I'll reverse that, if they treat with triptans after central sensitization in the brain is initiated, the triptans really may not completely reverse their pain. And he has been able to show this in, in, um, in the laboratory setting. And so that is also part of the rationale behind the combination therapy. So another part of the rationale, and I think the data supports that the rationale is, is correct and is accurate is that if patients treat later in an attack, as the patients in this study did, if they treat later, they're not penalized by treating later if we add naproxen sodium to the combination tablet. So I think that's another very important factor for all of us as clinicians. Patients wait to treat. There are a multiplicity of reasons why they wait to treat. It may be because they hope it's not going to progress. It may be because they don't have drug with them at the time. For some patients, it may be that they awaken with migraine in the early morning hours and so they have slept through the opportunity to treat their migraines early. Sometimes it may be an issue of cost. They may simply not have enough tablets available and if they're what a patient, as many of the patients in this trial were, an individual who's having six moderate to severe migraine attacks a month, they may wait to treat because they're afraid they may not have enough tablets. There are really many reasons why individuals wait to treat and we know that they do after 13 years of having triptans available. So again, the notion of adding therapy to that a therapy to sumatriptan that allows patients to overcome the so-called penalty of waiting to treat I think is a critically important part of how we treat these patients and how we treat them and really try to render them pain-free and keep them that way. So I think that if we look at the other piece of that, we I think we're able to show and I hope you will um, agree from the data, and we can certainly discuss that in more detail, but I think when we look at the nature of the attacks, and those are shown in the study again, these were experienced migraineurs. Unfortunately, they were migraineurs who had moderate to severe attacks and who had had them for, uh, you know, many of them had had migraine for more than 10 years. When we look at the primary measure primary measures, we met statistical significance at all, we met all the primary endpoints, and beyond that, um, this penalty was not, the, the penalty of additional uh, or combination therapy really didn't appear to hit in terms of adverse events. And I think that's certainly very important to us as clinicians and certainly it's very important to patients. And I think if you, there's a summary table showing the adverse events, they are typically the ones that one sees for any of the triptan therapies. They're certainly well established with sumatriptan as with the other six triptans. And I think probably because of the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory component, the naproxen sodium, we would all be interested in whether or not chest 
discomfort or GI symptoms were out of proportion. And I think you'll see from the data that there did not appear to be any particular increase in terms of adverse events in any of the treatment groups as related to um, dyspepsia or as related to nausea or as related to chest discomfort. And certainly the numbers were not dissimilar between naproxen sodium and, uh, I'm sorry, they were not dissimilar between naproxen sodium SUMA combination and sumatriptan. So it does not appear that the addition of the naproxen sodium to the, in the, in, by means of a fixed tablet really changes the adverse event profile for individuals who are using that versus using simply uh, sumatriptan or triptan alone. So I think that part of the part of the um, benefit, as I see it, from the standpoint of this trial, is it allows us in a in a in a, in a large randomized placebo control in a large randomized placebo control trial to really look at experienced migraineurs with severe migraine, to look at what happens to them when they treat an attack and then measure their responses, both in terms of what happens to the headache, what happens to the associated features light and sound sensitivity, nausea and vomiting to those migraineurs, and then once they become, once they achieve a response, pain-free or, or headache relief, can they stay that way? Because one of the disadvantages of most of the earlier tryptan trials has been that they've not looked at sustained pain-free data, and this really does look at that. And when we look specifically at the implications from that, we were able to show that patients who achieved this sustained efficacy, as it's um, called, when they achieved um, sustained efficacy, they used less rescue medication and they had less headache recurrence in, in all, among all the patients who were treated. And again, I think that has a number of clinical implications for us. I think there's a benefit to the patient certainly in aborting or essentially interrupting the attack of migraine. There's a benefit to those of us um, from the standpoint of uh, cost for people who insure patients. It allows employers to get patients back to work, which is what I think patients want to do and certainly the people who employ them need them to do. It's less costly in the long run because patients who are at work are functioning and able to to work and take care of their families and do what they need to do, it's actually also less costly from the standpoint of drug cost because if a patient can take a fixed combination product, treat and abort the headache and return to full function, they don't have to take rescue, they don't have to perhaps go to the emergency room or acute care therapy, get acute care therapy in other settings. And then I think the other point that we really don't discuss in detail in the paper, but I think that's very important to me as a clinician who's very interested in migraine is that there's increasing data that with repeated attacks of migraine over time, we know that that may put the patient at risk for progression of migraine and for progression into what's sometimes termed chronic migraine or migraine that is occurring more than 15 days a month. And there's been data certainly published in JAMA, I think in January 2004, from a Dutch group looking at frequency of attacks and based on attack frequency changes in white matter in brain. So permanent white matter changes in brain, um, areas of subcortical infarction in the posterior circulation were reported in migraineurs who were having more than one attack a month. So I think we have increasing evidence from other sources, from researchers who work in terms of brain imaging and in terms of the pathophysiology of migraine to suggest that with frequent attacks or with attack frequency being high, there may be permanent changes in brain. And I think the other important clinical portion of this is to for us all to keep in mind, and I think probably every clinician on the line will be very familiar with this, is that many of the combination products that are currently on the market that are available for patients often contain caffeine, some of them contain butalbital, so the issues of medication overuse headache arise, and certainly um, habituation is important in that patient population, and again, most of that overuse in my view is related to the fact that patients don't get pain-free or they don't successfully treat attacks and when they don't then they may take other medications and so ironically that failure to interrupt the attack sets the patient up, I think, for a host of things, not only more pain and suffering, but it also sets them up for, as, the, as they have the recurrence of the attack, it sets them up for medication overuse 
and again, it may set them up into sort of a downward spiral in migraine. So I'm going to stop there, um, Dr. Shute, and um, I'm happy to certainly talk about any specific things regarding uh, the paper or its potential implications in clinical practice. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Brendis, and thank you for that presentation. This is really, really very valuable work, I think, for all of those in clinical practice who struggle with how to take good care of these patients and avoid some of the uh, challenges that you mentioned, including the drug habituation issues. Uh, and I want to give you a special thank you for your willingness to be on the call today and, and acknowledge to all of our listeners that Dr. Brandis is actually in South Korea right now and has agreed to be on this call due to her uh, dedication and interest in the topic. And, and what time is it now in South Korea? I think it is 4 a.m. Wonderful. Well, thank so it's you. only 1.30 national time, right? <laughs> there you go. Well, thank you so much for coming or for being with us. Now I want to turn our, our conversation a little bit to uh, what this research suggests about clinical changes in our practice and try to get our conversation now to the much more concrete level of what do we do differently in our offices as healthcare professionals. And I guess I'd like to first ask you to briefly respond to what do you do differently now in your clinical practice because of these results. Dr. Brandis? Well, I think certainly I use combination therapy, and because the fixed dose is not available, I do use triptans. I will use sumatriptan with naproxen sodium, and I will instruct patients to take it at the same time. So that's currently probably, I would say, more than 80% of my patients, and granted, I have some bias because I tend to see more severely impacted um, headache patients, but I do instruct them to take as soon as possible and to take all of the tablets at the same time. And is there any way that you sort of support that education piece with them? Um, is this just how you write your prescription? Do you do any kind of special teaching around these results? Uh, are, are there written instructions? How do, you, how do you help the patients play out their part most effectively? They're actually both, Dr. Shute. We find, and, and I'll tell you, this is my 14th year of doing headache, and I found that writing it down amazingly does not always work. Huh, really? So I think that's part of the, you know, the, the importance of follow-up visits, and we try to do both. I try to talk to the patient a little bit about the pathophysiology of migraine and why we've chosen, for example, if it's, a, say, it's a sumatriptan naproxen sodium, why they've chosen, we've chosen both drugs, that the sumatriptan is, is constricting the blood vessels, it's shutting down pain processing in the brain, and it's reducing the release of inflammatory substances early in the attack, that by adding naproxen sodium, they're treating the inflammatory process as it continues, and they may overcome the fact that the pain may progress rapidly in migraine, so that uh, they're more likely uh -huh. to get pain-free quicker. So it sounds like education really is your key strategy, both written and, and oral education for exactly. patients to help them understand the benefits of the combined therapy and to help shape their behavior to be a little bit more proactive. Exactly. And Wonderful. we also, when they come back, ask them those questions. If you took it early, did you take it all? Did you uh, take it at the same time? And were you pain-free at 30 minutes? Or when did you get pain-free? And if you got pain-free, did the headache return? And are you doing that with patients now outside the study as a way to reinforce your instructions? Absolutely. Wonderful. And that's a great teaching tool. Well, thank you, Dr. Brandis. Now we're going to turn uh, to questions from our callers. Uh, your questions can include either how to use the information to make improvements in practice uh, or anything else of interest, certainly to clarify the findings. And please do feel free to share examples of what you already may have done with this information or with what you're planning to do to it. So at this point, I'd like to give uh, control of the call back over to Dawn. Uh, could you please give our listeners instructions on how to call in? Ladies and gentlemen, if you have a question, press zero, then the one key on your touchtone phone. This will place you into a queue. One by one, the lines will be open, so you may each ask your question. So again, that's zero one on your touchtone phone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, press zero, then the two key. And we'll wait a moment for questions to come into queue. Great. Thank you, Don. And, and Jen, um, while we're waiting, uh, let me just start by, by asking uh, or making a comment. This is obviously a therapy uh, directed for patients to do by themselves without really having to come in and contact you or your office staff. Is that correct? 
Um, I'm not sure I'm following you. Yeah, um, I mean, ideally this research is applied at the patient level. As they're educated, they can take these two medications on their own without needing to check in, without needing to come into your office or to check in for any kind of advice. Well, we actually use, I use the um, branded um, naproxen sodium uh -huh. if I can get it because of bioavailability, but if they are using an over-the-counter naproxen sodium, then we do like to be the person who, or the group that instructs them in terms of how to use it so that the dose is high enough because if you simply use an over-the-counter naproxen, that may be 200 milligrams. So the tendency, I think, is if you just say to a patient you can add naproxen, is that they may underdose, and that's right. really the other benefit of the trial. Is so, so we do like to specifically tell the patients how much, when to dose, and really how to do it. Great. Okay. Thank you. Dawn, are there any questions in the queue yet? The first question comes from Lenore Henning at the American Nurses Training Association. Great. Thank you, Dawn. Lenore, Lenore, go ahead. Hi. Yes. I was just wondering what your pediatric dose was and what the uh, age group that um, would receive this would be. No. Great question. Thank you. It's a great question. Unfortunately, the study did not include patients below the age of 18, so we do not have any data from the trial looking in children or in adolescents. I can tell you that um, off-label, um, certainly as someone who treats adolescents, I use the same dosages in adolescents unless they have some, you know, difficulty in terms of weight. If they're a normal weight from 13 on, I will use adult doses in them. Um, but it is not studied in that patient population. I would simply add parenthetically that the triptans have been looked at, as you know, in children and adolescents. And safety has never been an issue. It's been the issue of efficacy because the placebo rates were so high in those trials. Uh -huh. So I do think that they are appropriate choices, you know, inexperienced, um, you know, clinicians. And it's just, and I, there is one before the FDA now uh, for um, triptan approval for in, in children um, and adolescents. So I hope that that will be the case. But unfortunately for the combination, though I am using it in adolescents outside the trial and not this specific product, um, I, think this, I think the safety will hold up, but there's just not um, data. Would, um, would this be a, you know, kilograms, milligrams per kilogram dose of the 85 and the 500? Is that for a certain recommended uh, weighted person? You know, it's that just, you could do the it's, math, just it's just not established. I mean, uh -huh. I think that's not unreasonable, but it's just not established. And in general, I would say that the pediatric neurologists with whom I collaborate tend to essentially dose sumatriptan on the basis of weight. So that is essentially. So if they're using, for example, sumatriptan injectable, they may use half of the injectable. And now, of course, that is now available um, as a... Um, four milligram product so you can get your three milligram product so you can get a lower dose, you know, that is available, but it's just not it's just not evaluated. Okay. Thank you very much. Great and thank you for your question. Uh Dawn, next question please. There are no oh wait a minute. We've got one just came in from Kim Hindley at Virginia Health Quality Center. Great. Thank you, Kim. Go ahead. Hi, um just wanted to say I'm very excited about this study because I'm a clinician as well as a migraine sufferer for over 15 years. Uh, <laughs> me too, I might, I might yes. add. It is exciting, isn't it? <laughs> it is. I was wondering, though, um, do you have any data to support the use of naproxen with any of the other tryptans besides the sumatriptan? We do not. Um, I think that, um, interestingly enough, the, um, I'm sure that, I, and I certainly have experience using naproxen sodium with other tryptans. There's no reason to think that it would beha behave differently. I think the, um, the, there was some data using one of the COX-2s, which is no longer on the U.S. market, with another of the tryptans um, that was shown to be beneficial. That was simply dosing at the same time. So that data you know, is still around even though, you know, that drug is now, of course, off the U.S. market. So there has been this interest in looking at multi-mechanism therapies for acute migraine. I would, you know, add the caveat, um, however, that one of the difficulties about that, and it sort of relates to the previous question about dosing and how do you dose it on the basis of weight and other things, is that I think that we should have some caution in terms of how we apply doses, regardless of which tryptan and, and say, using naproxen with another tryptan, is that's the advantage of this trial, is that optimal dose really has been worked out in the trial. And one of the problems with 
using um, you know varying combinations is that they're not really studied. I think it probably is going to be what we see over the course of now that this data is out. I hope that it means people will be more um, or increasingly open to using combinations, and over time we'll begin to see that. But I suspect we'll see that on the basis of how our, how our patients respond. Well, thank you very much. And thank you for your question, Kim. That's wonderful. Uh, Dr. Brandis, I have, a, I have a question for you here. Um, does this information change how you would approach your treatment of a patient who may actually present in your clinic uh, in the throes of a migraine, uh, or even how we should think about patients that we might be treating in the emergency room? Yes, I mean, I think that, you know, the issue that we've seen there is from, you know, Burstein's work, which I mentioned earlier, is that if you wait to treat and the patient becomes centrally sensitized, which almost by definition, anyone coming to the emergency room or to an urgent care facility is, you could, you know, we could almost, I think, guarantee that that patient's centrally sensitized because of the duration of the attack by the time they get to one of those facilities. So at that point, it may be that the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug is much more important or a steroidal um, anti-inflammatory drug. So that's a time when, for example, we might employ the use of IV Ketorolac to, um, again, as sort of a step up from the naproxen. So IV Ketorolac, IM, if IV is, if someone doesn't have access in a clinic setting to, I, uh, to IV, we might use the drug IM. And probably the drug that we use most commonly in that setting is um, Decadron, branded Decadron, dexamethasone, again, because it's acting presumably later in the chain of events that lead to migraine, and it is acting at the level of central sensitization. So I do think that we can take, you know, important data from this trial and apply it to those settings. Ironically, we still, um, Burstein's work has shown that if you use sumatriptan even later in the attack, it may reduce the throbbing, most intense portion of the migraine pain. It may not get, it won't render the patient pain free. But so we will often, if a patient has not taken sumatriptan, for example, we will use the sumatriptan injectable at that point. So the patient might receive dexamethasone, sumatriptan injectable, and we might use propylperazine 10 milligrams or odansetron if they have difficulties with um, um, dystonic reaction or akathisia with proclopyrazine, we might, that's a time when we might use the drug odansetron 8 milligrams. And I think that that's, you know, that's where we really can take, as you point out, the benefits from this trial and apply what we now know about response mechanistically to drugs to acute care settings and to patients who have not had the benefit of treating early. Wonderful. Thank you. Dawn, are there any more questions in the queue at this time? There are no further questions at this time. All right. Well, actually, I have another question. And, you know, it, it sounds from re reading your research and listening to your, your discussion that you're advising really uniform use of the combination medication in, in patients who present with migraine, assuming there's no contraindications. Are there any instances where you would recommend uh, monotherapy alone, either with the sumatriptan or the naproxen sodium? Well, I think, for example, in the patient, you know, many patients, as you know, are GI intolerant. Uh, certainly some patients really can't tolerate the NSAIDs, and for those patients, I would certainly not include it as part of their um, regimen. Um, I think if a, I would, I think that it's important for us always when we're treating an acute attack of migraine or, you know, repeated attacks of migraine is to really talk to the patient about how to treat, how to treat early, and, and designing a treatment regimen for them if they are the, someone who tends to have very rapid onset attacks, so they start and the patient gets in trouble in terms of pain within 10 or 15 minutes, they may need, you know, very, uh, very specific medications targeted that can get into the, uh, get into um, brain or get into bloodstream and brain very quickly. So I think um, I, there are patients certainly who can use triptans if they are getting pain-free in 30 minutes to an hour with no return of the pain and no interference with function, then I think that's fine. I wouldn't add, um, I would not add say naproxen sodium to them. If that's not the case, though, I would look at it. Alternatively, or, or on the other side, um, if I have a patient that is triptan intolerant and a patient who um, experiences uh, chest discomfort, which we uh, know is a common side effect, it's not 
you know, it's not uh, ischemic chest pain, but it is that chest, that tightness, and sometimes it will radiate into the jaw, or sometimes patients feel a tingling sensation and really just don't tolerate the drug. And that's certainly rare, but if it happens, that's a patient where I might um, use naproxen sodium as a first-line medication. So that would be a, a choice. And then again, for patients on either side of that who are not intolerant of, of the drug, then I would put them in combination because I think the real marker is in how quickly can we get a patient pain-free and can we keep the attack from returning. So once we get them pain-free, can we keep them that way? I do think that one of my concerns, and I think something that often comes up in the discussion about this, is simply, well, why don't you just, you know, take simitriptan and take zinaproxen and just be done with it? Why fix combination? I do think that the drug may be very important, if, and it's, as you know, I think it's before the FDA now, um, and I think they will, they have um, said that they will decide in August about approval. So I, my hope certainly is that it will, will be approved by the FDA. Then. But I think one of the issues is that, you know, most migraine in this country is treated in primary care uh, settings. And I think I can tell you from my experience as a quote-unquote headache specialist is that trying to get someone to take a drug to take two drugs, to take them correctly, to get both prescriptions filled, keep it all together and do all those pieces is often very challenging and that may seem sort of crazy, but I can promise after more than a decade we see it and sometimes I, I loved your question earlier about how do, how do you, how does one partner with the patient in terms of doing this. We talk to individuals, we talk to our patients about what's happening in brain, we talk to them about why we chose this combination of drugs, we then give them something that's written down and we give them the script and it's all written down and explained and we will still have patients who come back and these are highly intelligent, highly capable patients who will come back and say, oh well I didn't realize I was supposed to take them together or I took this one first and I waited. I thought I was only supposed to take that one if and the it goes on like that. And so again, it's often at the second or third visit before we really get patients to begin to do combination. And in primary care settings where physicians, nurse practitioners often have very limited time, I think that that's a place where we have the potential to see a fixed combination product really change the way migraineurs respond to drug because it overcomes some of those barriers. And yes, it would be nice if those barriers weren't there, but they really are. And to be able to give someone a single set of instructions and a single drug that's really been shown to be efficacious, safe, and tolerable, I think it, particularly in the primary care setting, is going to be invaluable. Great. Thank you. And Dawn, do we have any more uh, questions in the queue at this time? There are no more questions. Okay. Wonderful. Uh, Dr. Brandis, you've actually provided a real nice segue to an area that I think is very interesting. Uh, if we think about migraine as a chronic condition, which I think is fair to say it is for, for many patients, uh, there's been a lot of really good work about how we can best get uh, care for patients and get improved outcomes with chronic conditions. And obviously the work of Ed Wagner et al. is, I think, a landmark work and key in a lot of that. Uh, an important part of the work of the care model or the chronic care model is really talking about how we engage patients as partners in care and the whole field of literature around patient self-management. That is, you know, how do we most effectively get patients engaged in managing their chronic conditions? Uh, what I think is exciting about this research is that it truly is a therapy that's in the patient's hands that they can manage when they need to. And you talked a little bit about the important role of education, but do you have any other wisdom for us, uh, either about the appropriate use of these medications or about other key self-management behaviors uh, for migraineurs? Well, I think one area, of course, for just for me that, that I think is very important is always reinforcing that migraine is a biologic disorder. I think we still have a lot of what I would call migraine mythology. You know, migraine is because someone is under stress or because someone is, you know, doesn't handle um, stressful situations well or because if they were just more calm and the list sort of goes on if they were at my line is if you were taller, thinner, um, prettier, nicer to your mother-in-law, I mean, that kind of list. And of course, 
I'm not in any way trying to say that stress is not a trigger for migraine, but it's not a cause. And you either sort of have the genetic predisposition for migraine or you don't. And I think it's very important to really teach migraineurs about what's known about the genetics of migraine, and there's an increasing understanding of the fact that there may be multiple genes. Many of the genes are now mapped for migraine. The reason that women are more vulnerable is because of the hormonal fluctuations that put the migraineur at risk for more frequent attacks. So it's not really a woman's disease, it's just that women have more opportunities for fluctuations in estrogen, for example, to trigger their attacks. And I think with, the, with that in mind, also teaching patients that what they have is migraine, if indeed it is. I think probably the biggest misdiagnosis in this country is sinus headache, and there's been um, much work in that area. And, you know, if you don't know you have migraine, you can never ask for treatment, and nor can you ever be given migraine-specific treatment. And so I think really sticking to what migraine is, 4 to 72 hours in adults for an attack, for migraine, for the headache pain, only two of the following four, headache on one side of the head and 60% of migraineurs moderate to severe in character, um, pulsing or throbbing, um, and last but not least, pain, headache pain that's made worse with routine activity. And if individuals meet two of those four criteria for their you know, moderate to severe attacks, then that fulfills the criteria for the headache phase. And then patients only have to have one of the following, nausea and or vomiting, sensitivity to light and sound. And I, when I work with patients, I make sure they understand why I think they have migraine because I think if someone thinks they have sinus headache, even if, and they may think only the big attacks are migraine and all those smaller attacks are really sinus headache, they're much less likely to use a quote-unquote migraine medication. And that would do, that dooms any acute migraine uh, treatment or any partnership, you know, any engagement of the patient from the beginning because if someone doesn't realize that moderate, mild to moderate attack is migraine, they may not treat it correctly. And I think that's one of the reasons we see so much medication overuse in migraine. Patients will start out thinking the headache is, quote, sinus headache. They may take a nonspecific over-the-counter medicine and when it doesn't go away or it, quote, turns into a migraine, end quote, then they pull out, say, a drug like sumatriptan or one of the other triptans and we know, again, if the headache's more advanced, it's less likely to respond as well to that treatment. That's a place where I think this new product is going to be so helpful for patients who don't always recognize on the front end that the headache may advance. And for some patients who are yet still in that phase of learning that what they think is sinus really is migraine, this fixed combination may be important for them. So I think in working with patients, making sure they understand and believe the diagnosis and of course have the correct diagnosis is absolutely critical. Because I think that if patients then the next phase of that for me as a clinician is to try to explain on some level to patients why we choose the drugs that we choose, whether it's acute medication or some patients may, of course, in the patients that you described that have much more frequent attacks, many of those patients need to be on daily medicine to try to prevent attacks or to review, reduce the severity of any attacks that may, may break through. And I think if we talk to patients about what's happening in brain, that there's a release of inflammatory substances, there's sterile inflammatory substances that get released and that pain processing goes on through the trigeminal system in brain and that the blood vessels dilate or expand. I think it gives patients some sort of vision in terms of how they think about what's happening in their heads. And if we teach them that the drugs can overcome those pieces, and specifically, I mean, most people are very familiar with, for example, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications now that they reduce inflammation. And again, teach them about what the triptans do and why in, on the basis of their attack profile, we would choose a combination of medications or why, you know, we would choose this particular set of combinations. And there may be other combinations used as well. I think if we marry some understanding of the pathophysiology to migraine to the treatment that we propose for a patient and then tell them what we want the outcome or what we hope the outcome to be, I think that really leads to having the patient assume part of the responsibility. They, I call it uh, giving them permission to treat because one of the things that I find with migraineurs is that, you know, and I'm a migraineur too, I, I loved what the young woman said about she was excited both as a clinician as and as a migraineur. You know, migraineurs think they feel the attack coming on if they're lucky enough to have it begin as, a, begin as mild pain. They feel it coming on and they think, okay, I'm just going to drink a little coffee. Right. I'm going to, you know, loosen, uh, stretch, you know, I'm all those things. I'm going to make this go away. 
I'm going to make this go away. And of course, while that's happening, all that flood of inflammatory um, substances is being released, the trigeminophorin system is being activated, you know, messages are pouring into brainstem, into the area that where central sensitization gets really gets initiated. And I think that, you know, that, I sometimes call that um, the, the eternal uh, positivity or sort of optimism of migraine. As a friend of mine says, that's really denial, you know, that we're just hoping it's not going to happen. But whatever it is, I think that as we teach patients about that and we listen to them and then repeat back, you know, when you do this, that's the reason that headache advances or that's the reason the drug you've used before has not been effective for you. And sometimes patients will have used triptans and they've not found them to be effective, and it's often simply because they have waited to treat until they've become centrally sensitized. So I think whatever language we use, you know, may be directed on the, the level of education or the medical sophistication of a patient, but I think we can always find language that works for an individual patient, and once they sort of get that piece, once they have an understanding, then it becomes you know, it becomes a real disorder. The other parallel that I often use with patients is, is related to the headache calendar. I'm a big proponent of the headache calendar. We, you know, we, no one in primary care would ever use um, antihypertensives or adjust them without getting a blood pressure or having serial blood pressures. We, you know, no one would treat diabetes without hemoglobin A1Cs or, you know, serial acutex. So in migraines, the calendar is our measure of that. And so we have patients keep the calendar and and mark on, we use very simple calendars, and just have them mark from zero to 10, the highest level the headache reached for that day. If they're women who still are having menstrual periods, we ask them to circle any days they have menstrual period or menstrual periods or if they're in perimenopause or, or at another time when they may have breakthrough bleeding to, to mark that. And then that lets us see, for example, whether when they treat, if they treat early with a combination, whether or not they have returned of the headache. And, you know, that's essentially what we did in these trials. We had the patients mark it. You know, once you took your fixed dose combination, you had to report at half an hour an hour, an hour and a half, two hours, and then on down the line to see what had happened to that attack. And when patients do that in real life, it really lets you see how effective that strategy is so that if you have a patient only taking a triptan, for example, and their headache's coming back at the same time the next day, you know that's a recurrence of the attack, and that's the perfect patient to add another to add the combination with. Great. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Brandis. This has been a wonderful discussion uh, of a really exciting work. That's all the time we have right now for questions. Uh, it's been a wonderful discussion of the issues brought out. And Dr. Brandis, I guess I want to give you just two minutes here uh, to wrap up with any closing thoughts or comments. Well, I would simply say that, you know, by the time most patients come to see probably any of us, they will often have already tried over-the-counter treatments for treating an acute attack of migraine. Sometimes they may also have taken narcotics from another medical procedure they've had. Sometimes they borrow them from friends or family members. So most of the patients who come to medical treatment, even in primary care, have usually tried something by the time they get to us. So when they do, I think it's really important for us to accurately diagnose migraine and to see whether those patients really are candidates for therapy that may include combination therapy, but the, I think the real focus should be on if a patient treats, they should treat early, and then can they get pain-free within 30 minutes to an hour? Can they stay pain-free, and then can they return to full function? And I think those are the standards against which we should measure any acute therapy, and I think the fixed-dose combination of sum and aproxen stands up well in that regard, so I hope it will ultimately be available to patients. Great. Thank you very much, Dr. Brand. This has been a great conversation with you today uh, and an enlightening discussion. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you. And then in closing, I want to give you all a reminder. Uh, Author in the Room is a monthly program that takes place on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 p.m. Eastern uh, time. Our next discussion or our next guest, uh, guest author will be Dr. Stephen R. Steinbull uh, discussing his work, What is the Correct Dose of Aspirin for Prevention of Cardiovascular Disease? 
Author in the Room is sponsored by both the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Author in the Room is an interactive conference call designed to help you accelerate changes that can improve clinical care. Thank you all today for being a part of the call and have a good day.